You ready, boy? Think so, yeah. No, I mean ready. Look at these guys, not as suspect to agent, but as cop to cop. Don't give them any more deference than they're due. And don't keep calling them sir. Well, they're still the United States government. No, they aren't the United States government. They're just three pricks who work for the United States government. You understand the difference? Nobody in that room is a better man than you. You understand? Come on. You'll be fine. Hello, friends. Greetings and salutations. It's Chapo coming at you once again. On today's episode, we've got Matt, Felix, and Amber on deck. And uh, be forewarned, if you are one of our uh, fail listeners who does not appreciate alpha movie mindset, switch off now. This is going to be another movie episode. And if you're one of the one of our one of our Triggered. fans, if you're one of our fans who just gets absolutely zero goop, tune, and clown, and is very upset about that, you're going to want to switch off. Or if you'd like your life to get better, you should um, keep <laughs> listening as we break down a film that I think uh, it, it's a film that's a period piece about the '90s, but it, it sums up 2020 on like the American character in a way that is so uncanny and so on point. I think it legitimately qualifies as a masterpiece. I'm referring. 100. I'm referring, Absolutely. of course, to it is probably the best movie that a 110 year old Clint Eastwood has made <laughs> since I don't know Gran Torino. And I, yep. the, the difference is with Richard Jewell is what we were talking about. I like Richard Jewell unironically, whereas yeah, right. Gran, yeah. whereas Gran Torino I just enjoy because it's like one of the yeah. funniest movies ever made. My experience with Gran Torino is I saw it when I was an 18 year old fail lord with my sister, and on our way back. We had a huge argument stemming from me being like very fail, some fail thing I was doing. I forget what it was. I think it was like lying about quitting smoking. It sounds like something I would do. But uh, we had a huge argument, like screamed at each other in the car right back. And then after like 20 minutes of yelling at each other, she went, we didn't even get to talk about how awful that was. <laughs> we had to spend two hours deconstructing what a piece of shit Gran Torino was. But he's been making the same movie every year. He's been trying to make the. He's trying to been. I think we, now with this movie, you could look back and say for like for the last twenty years when he's had this assembly line of all these darkly lit movies that all look like they were shot inside a coffin, and he's <laughs> been trying to tell the same story with a different lens, and none of them quite worked. And this was the moment. This movie is when it all clicked in. And it's like you could see what he was trying to get at with all those other movies, but he yeah. failed because like he picked the wrong material, uh, you know, or the wrong like uh, perspective. This ev- the stars the the stars come into alignment, and it just makes everything what he's trying to do sing. And you're like, damn, this guy is fucking good. Yeah, it is the first time he attempted to uh, tell a story that wasn't old, put upon man reacts badly to a changing world, um, but. I got to say, like, other than, do you guys remember The Changeling? Oh, yeah. Yeah, with Angelina Jolie. George C. Scott. Like, no, 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 oh, wait, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. No, the, the, this is the Angelina, Oh, God, that movie sucked. That was it terrible. It was so bad. That it, was terrible. I actually like Clint Eastwood as a director. Uh, he is the most reactionary director since Lenny Riefenstahl, but <laughs> I, I have a good time uh, with his movies, even when they are turds. But that movie, I remember thinking, oh, he knows that it's not good because he said, you know, 
she's actually very talented, but people don't <laughs> give her enough credit because she's so beautiful. Oh, yes. That is right. such an old guy thing to say. <laughs> oh, my oh, God. Yeah. I can so, smell the mothballs walking off him. I know. <laughs> like, there's a patina of old man over yeah. everything that he does. Yeah. But why I think he needed because like he had he he basically was trying to tell a story like this put upon person like the modern condition fucking over of somebody right and he's been trying to tell that story uh, like against the grain of hegemonic cultural liberalism which is why it's interesting but he couldn't quite get it because he didn't do it from the point of view of a loser yes right. he needed yes. a loser uh, and- uh, Sully isn't a loser fucking American sniper American sniper isn't a loser. You know, the mule isn't a loser. Um, yeah, but to, to, to your point, Matt, like, it, I feel like Clint has been trying to tell this story over and over again for like the last 10 or 15 years. And he's like, you know, doing movies that are based on real people and like real historical events. And, you know, like the, I think the closest one to Richard Jewell was Sully because, yeah. you know, it's, it's like it's like sort of a. Like, like an average, like, well-meaning guy who sort of, like, does something heroic and then is fucked over by, like, a larger system of bureaucratic control and management. Birds. But the thing with Sully, I remember, like, him talking about, like, why he wanted to make this movie. And, and Sully was a very bad movie. Is that Ooh. he was like, well, I, did, I didn't think much of the story after I saw it on the news. But uh, then I found out that the FAA bureaucrats were trying to take his job from him. <laughs> Some some bitch Skylar White was uh, trying to <laughs> trying to divorce him and take away his small business plane flying rights, and you know yeah. like this this is this is like the the Clint point of view, and it, it's just like like I feel like like you you posted about it last night where it was just like he is uh, like ninety seven years old. And then, like he after after just years of putting out really dull, fucking like like just boring movies, like grasping at what he achieves in this movie, he fucking pulls it off, and he just throws out a goddamn heater. And you're like, wow, maybe the Joe yeah. Biden presidency won't be so bad. Maybe he'll actually, yeah, maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe like like you. There's a certain point of dementia you get where you're so enraptured in memories you have from 70 years ago that it gives you a unique. Uh, visual understanding and direct. You become unstuck from time. Yeah. You're the Chris yeah. Hatterock. Yeah, it's like if Doctor Manhattan yes. directed a movie. Uh, so <laughs> Joe Biden, the first two years of his presidency, awful austerity. There's going to be some bill where it's like if you buy Chuck Taylors and went to a historically black college but are of 12 percent Central Asian descent, you can uh, open an interest-free payday loan store or something. <laughs> like, just nonsense. And then year three, boom, Medicare for all. Um, I, yeah, no, I, what I love about this movie is I think that, like, people ran away with the idea that it's a MAGA narrative because it's against... What? Yeah. Someone said that? People said that oh, because... Uh, because the thing the main... is that the, the, bare mo- the bare structure of the plot is essentially, like, you could read it as if you want to and you want to be a dork and you want to be a killjoy about it. You could read it as a straight-up allegory for Trump. Trump is Richard Jewell, and he is a guy who wants to do what's best, but is beset by the evil forces the of arrayed against him by like the deep state of the fake news media. The problem is, is that that makes Trump Richard Jewell, which makes him a fucking loser and oaf. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. Like that's that's why I love this movie is because yeah, the protagonist is a loser, and he's not like a completely sympathetic loser either. Like, no, no, yeah, no. He's, you can no, see how he could like break bad and, and be like a fucking yeah, yeah, like, yeah. A, 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 like a small town psycho he's, cop. Yeah, he's yeah. very he's very freakish and has like an like this weird fucking worship of authority. 
But the point of the movie is it that Richard Jewell is this amazing, perfect guy, yeah. and the awful news media and FBI set him up. It's that this shouldn't happen to anyone. Which yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, Why I are we letting I, this happen to people I, in this I, fucking country? Yeah, I think it's very interesting because a lot of the people that complain about this, and let's be honest, the only reason they complain about this is because this movie is about a journalist being awful. Yeah. yeah, it's yes, about a journalist absolutely. being fucking awful. Just a cunt. Yeah. This one of the things that this actually reminded me of that kind of fits into the whole like, oh, this is a MAGA movie thing. Is I started thinking about like, oh, this is like when like the CIA grabs some fourteen-year-old uh, because he said he was going to bomb someone off of a off of a gaming stream, and the panic is that like. Any 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 sort of resentfulness that is reflected is automatically dangerous. Amber, yeah, I think it's amazing how people who cry, correctly identify that doing this to young black men and doing this to young Muslims is completely insane, that the tide is stacked against them. But they're so ready to do it to people like Richard Jewell or to do it with the Joker where they think suddenly yeah. these people who are yeah. rightfully skeptical of terrorism narratives – and the national security state are suddenly going, well, the military says we should be careful because this movie might radicalize people. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, mean, yeah, I want to police wait, officers yeah. at the Joker screenings. Yeah. I want to, I want, I, I want to get, I want to get into like breaking down like, like, like bit by bit the movie. I have so many notes. I was just watching this last night, just madly typing out notes for today's episode. But, you know, I want to get back to what Matt said. And I think this is like the really crucial point is that like, you know, Clint Eastwood as like one of America's premier reactionary artists is like, you know, he makes a lot, he's made a lot of bad movies. He's made a lot of dog shit. A lot of his views are kind of tiresome, but it's often in the guise of the cranky old reactionary that some of the most scabrous commentary about American culture is able to flourish. But like, not like critique and commentary that's not just stupid, like right wing drivel that like really does right. cut to the bone mm -hmm. and is and is real. But the crucial point is what Matt said is that he's been looking for a movie about how like the government and the media fuck over and crush like well meaning like diligent people just doing their job. But crucially. He had to do one about a movie about a loser. That is like that is yep. so important yeah. because it doesn't allow either him or the viewer to imagine that they're Chris Kyle and that like yeah. imbue yeah. some heroic narrative to it. It's show, it's show, it, what he's showing in in Richard Jewell is that like this is how badly you get treated when you're when you're when you believe in all of the shit that right wing people believe in about yeah. like respecting mm -hmm. law enforcement and the government and like wanting to like help and protect people and shit like that. And like he he makes it seem pathetic. And like it's like mm -hmm. like it, that's what really like makes like this movie is just so acid tinged about like I said the character of America in 2020 as it relates to just like our our schizophrenic relationship to the government where like we uh we we revere cops but then also want to overthrow the state and it just like it shows you like just how badly the government and like the FBI can fucking ruin anyone's life if they wanted to. But it also shows how psychotic you have to be to like want to be a cop and love them and fucking like yeah. make your whole life about like uh, admiring law enforcement. It's not. It's not psychotic at all. It's you just bought, frankly, one of the strongest narratives that run through American civil society and culture. Yeah, and yeah. it's. Something that I love about this is, yeah, Jewel is a reactionary, but he's not like he's not a completely masculine reactionary. He's a big doughboy who lives he's, with his mother. And he's who a boy. Dotes on him and tri sticks his little fat finger in the cake she's baking to try to eat a little bit, and she pulls it back as an adult man. 
that's why it was shocking that like Eastwood even took on this project. Yeah, I mean, whoa, he's whoa, never whoa. been able to be that vulnerable in his it is like uh, authorial sympathies before. He's always had to be a guy like him because you remember this guy is the guy who decided to run for mayor of Carmel, California, because the ADA made him build a ramp to the hotel he owned. I mean, yeah. he's like a persnickety <laughs> rich guy. He's a rich old prick, and he's like, and it's like, you don't want to hear him complain about this shit because his his complaints are piddling. A guy like you have to have actual like people who are malused by like the liberal state, and, and have to see like the real results of that, which is people who aren't equipped to deal with it. Something that I think is important to note: a lot of people who are set up and framed and had their lives ruined and entrapped and destroyed by the press, by the FBI, by the national security state, by the larger media, they're also weak reactionaries. Yeah. What is what is like yeah. a what is a religious fundamentalist but a sort of weak reactionary often? Mm-hmm. What is a failed not quite terrorist, someone who's not actually going to do it, but you fucking entrap him, you push him along, right. you radicalize him, you make him insane. Someone who is already very malleable to that. These the point of it isn't that we have a perfect protagonist or a perfect subject of law enforcement and media torture. The point of it is that no matter how weak or reactionary or whatever the views are, that you can just say, oh, well, he was in that position, that it's never okay to do this. That's why the, yeah. that's why this that's why I have no real problem with the ideology of this movie at all. And I, yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's completely childish to read this as a MAGA movie just because of the two main antagonists. And like, yeah, people people talk about it like as character assassination with what they did with Scruggs, uh, Olivia Wilde's character, by having her fuck the FBI agent for source. But there's a real thing she did that I think is worse than that. Yes, that no one yeah. comments on that, and that's uncritically reprinting law enforcement sources. Yes, a huge problem for journalists and everyone who has made a huge show of changing how media is and their support for Black Lives Matter and, and all these things that. I agree with in how the media frames crimes. They said that they have a blind spot when talking about this movie, even though this character was doing the exact same thing we're supposed to be paying attention to. Right. Critical repetition of law enforcement sources. That was what this person's job was. That's the beauty of like the glamour and the of the crystal ball of like liberalism, because you look through one lens and that character is just this unscrupulous, uh, a hack who repeating police talking points, which is now like the worst kind of person you can be in the Black Lives Matter era, or you turn it a little bit because it's in the context of a Lint Eastwood MAGA movie, and she's a female journalist. Yeah, the and bravest guy. That's the defining characteristic. Okay, let's 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 dive into the film itself because like I, there's so much stuff here that bears talking about, and you know, I mean, in, in case you don't know the story of Richard Jewell, it's about the um, sort of like hapless oaf security guard who the FBI stitched up as the being the culprit for the Centennial Park Olympic bombing in 1996. But the, the film opens in 1986 and uh, Richard Jewell, in a, played by Paul Walter Hauser in an absolutely virtuoso performance. Oh my God. Just like, just, just Amazing. Pipped, Adam Sandler pipped at the post, best performance of last year, Paul Walter Hauser as Richard Jewell is just so 
so heartfelt and stunning in this role. There's so many fucking layers to, to the performance and just like it, he didn't it, it even could, get an Oscar nomination. It's a Shonda. It could have been yeah. have walked away with it. It could have been just like a caricature of like this kind of guy that, you know, we've made fun of uh, relentlessly on the show. But it, it, it's so much more than that. But I have to note that the very first line of dialogue that you hear in the movie is spoken by Watson Bryant, who's played by Sam Rockwell, who portrays the lawyer that will go on to be his sort of savior when he gets like really fucked up with the FBI. But the first line of like uh, audible dialogue you hear in the movie is Sam Rockwell's character on the phone with someone at a law firm, right? It's the U.S. Small Business uh, Administration. And he says here, the first thing you hear in the movie is you're violating the most sacred rights of a small business owner. And then he goes, <laughs> he goes, you're threatening me? Do it to my face. I met blah, blah, blah. He gives the address. He's like, come on down. I'd be love to see. You. He's like getting in like a, like a, like a forum uh, flame war. And then he just goes, good, good talking <laughs> yeah. to you. He goes, good talking to you, Senator. And it's just like, damn, damn, we, this guy is fucking for parking, real. Yeah. yeah, yeah, this guy's fucking for real. He's ready to fight a senator over violating small business rights. So it, it, it's like it, it begins in 1986, and it's like the first meeting of Richard Jewell and Watson Bryant. And at the time, Richard Jewell is a a lowly supply clerk at this uh, the U.S. Small Business Administration, and. He's sort of like, uh, he, 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 he says like, oh, like, hey, I see you're new here. And he pulls up with his little supply cart. And then he lets Watson Bryant know that he's already filled his desk, not just with tape and staples, but with Snickers bars because he noticed that there were Snickers wrappers in his garbage can. And like this, this establishes like something so important about the Richard Jewell character is that like, you know, he, he works these bullshit, like fucking like uh, menial jobs, but. He, he puts all of himself into it. He's like, he's like just so dedicated to being the best supply clerk imaginable. And as a result of that, all of his coworkers just shit all over him. Like they, like he is, he is just abused and humiliated by people simply because he wants to do his job well. And, and he fucks it up by trying to do extra credit. Constantly. Yes, exactly. Because he has the ability, because he, he's not a full, like the, he has, he is an oaf in all of his complexity because he's he's very incompetent in several ways, but in other ways he is very competent because of that attention to detail and his focus right. and how much of himself he puts behind his 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 work. But that means, but but he has a, he doesn't understand the social dimension that is like a part of success uh, yeah. in any endeavor. He's like socially maladapted, and he doesn't understand what is actually expected of him. Yeah, right. Yeah, it like it's not just anticipating me on this thing. It's also not being weird. That's also a, a requirement of the job. Right, right. The unspoken rule of America that you can't be that strange, you can't be exactly what Richard Jules is, which that is... That there's manners, that this yeah. shit isn't about ability necessarily. It's about ability to absorb manners. And you sink or swim in this country based on manners, not on virtue or ability. Which plays very hard into everyone's characterization of him uh, later uh, and, and their, their suspicions of him because he acts weird. So they're like, this is, this is the way a bomber would act. It's like, yep. no, that's the way a weird person acts. Yeah. Yes. And in some ways, generally, few people have it harder in America than the socially maladroit but enthusiastic freaks who... Where the hell, where was Richard Jewell supposed to learn how to behave normally? Yep. Where in his life? Well, that's, right. that's, that's the crucial thing. And, and also, some people can't ever do that. Yeah, oh. they can't, they couldn't do it if they wanted to. 
And how and 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 how are we going to treat people who are, who for whom this is not a, an expression of like their worthiness? It's it's pure it's pure chance. But Felix, the crucial thing is that like like you said, it, it's it's about manners, not about virtue or effort or ability. But like Richard Jewell is is like the kind of person who has received his sort of cultural programming about what a a competent like like uh, uh, someone worthy of admiration and respect in our society it's like he's received his programming like from early Clint Eastwood movies right yeah and like be, and like because he like takes it seriously well, and his mother yeah and and his sweet sweet mother which we'll talk about in a second but it's just sort of like it, 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 there's something so tragic about like there's no one America hates more than anyone who like really seriously believes in playing by the rules and doing a good job like and like like that's such an important thing going forward and like so so he meets Watson Bryant and it's this sort of like the chance meeting between him and this like sort of uh sort of swaggy like lawyer who stands up for small business rights and it cuts from there I'm at the law firm to uh, he's he's on his he's on his lunch break and he's in an arcade playing one of those um like games where like the gun is attached to the the arcade box by like a, a cable and he's just sort of like robotically uh, like firing at targets and uh, Sam Rockwell meets him like you know sort of runs into him there and starts playing with him and just uh you know shooting pulling the trigger with him and then Richard Jewell says uh. It's kind of like practice for my future in law enforcement, maybe FBI, <laughs> Secret Service, I'm thinking. And um, Rockwell goes, well, like, why would you do that? Because, like, it's, it's a style, like, Rockwell's, like, he's sort of this very, like, libertarian guy who's very skeptical of authority figures. And in Richard Jewell, um, in Paul Walter Hauser, he finds his exact opposite. In a, in a man who just, like, imprints on any authority figure around him like a baby bird and just follows it. And he says, well, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to get in law enforcement? And Jewel says, because I believe in protecting people. And that, I'm sorry, that literally is why a lot of people want to go into law enforcement. You can say all fucking day long that they have some sort of like psychotic fucking Clint Eastwood fantasy. And yes, a lot of them do. But neither does that, not all of them, and neither does that preclude also, a sense of virtue that they associate with being a protector, no matter how fucking like outdated or absurd that seems to anyone who is critical of that kind of authority. The sheep and the wolf thing from uh, American Sniper is like that the undergirding idea there. Well, I, I I thought that was amazing because American Sniper has this very yeah man managing look at the world where it's like you're either like a weak pussy cuck or you're a wolf, and you have to yeah. be bad to protect everyone, but. What I love about this is, like, there are some characters that you could say are wolves, like John Hamm's character. But it points out those aren't the only two types. Sometimes you're just a fucking loser. Yeah. What about losers? Yeah. What about what? And they want to help, but not they don't just know that. How. And not just that, but everyone could be given their conditions a sheep or a wolf. Like we we all have the sheep and the wolf inside of us, or whatever. Right. I, that that's the thing. It's not pro-cop and saying that cops should have free reign or that they're fundamentally good people. It's saying what Sam Rockwell's character says that the having power makes you a fucking maniac. Yeah. Richard, Richard Jewell is a little bit of a maniac and we see that when he works his job uh, as campus security. He's a little bit of a maniac. He's not as much of a maniac as John uh, Hamm's character. John Hamm's character as the FBI as cops who murder people. That said, it's not saying, oh, this guy has a right to be a cop. It's saying that this guy has the right to human dignity 
and everyone does. He has yeah. the right to human dignity, and guess what? When you put him in a job when he doesn't have a lot of power but can essentially, when you give him parameters and restrict his authority, he's actually pretty good at it, and he does keep yeah. people safe. Well, the protecting and, job he was good at. He was yeah. bad at the policing part. Yes. The right. authoritarian yes. part. Yes. yes. Because that shouldn't be a job. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yes. so, so it's like nailed it. In, in, the, in these early scenes, like, I think it's important. Like, like that Rockwell is nice to him. He calls him Radar, like from MASH. And they have a little bit of like a, a sort of like inter-office joviality with one another. But it, it's clear that Rockwell just kind of like barely tolerates him. And he's just like, but he's the only one who treats him with like any level of dignity out of anyone who he interacts with. And then like, you know, so Jewel comes into his office at one point and he's like, hey, I just wanted to say bye. I'm taking another job. And I just, he just, he gives him a Snickers bar before he leaves. It's just, it's so... It's so like wholesome and heartbreaking at the same time. And before he does, Rockwell, he takes like a, a crisp hundo out of his wallet. And he's like, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm giving this to you as a quid pro quo. And he's like, I'm giving it to you because when you get your badge, don't become an asshole. And like Felix says, he says, a little bit of power turns a person into a monster. And I'm giving you this so that you don't do that. I can collect it from you like later when you get your badge. So like that ends. Then it cuts like 10 years ahead in time and it's now 1996 and Richard Jewell is working at a campus security. Uh, he's working as a campus security officer at a college just getting shit on by obnoxious college brats who were like, oh, fuck you, rent-a-cop. I can drink beer if I want because my parents paid tuition here. It's like I'm paying rent. Oh, you have no authority over me. And what happens? It's literally like it's a pity they can't both get brutalized. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens? It's like he goes into a, he goes into a uh, like a dorm room to like you know like he's like what well, I say I, t- I said you no drinking on campus this semester he's doing his job and then it cuts he's to, being a psycho yeah he is Still. yeah, he is, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, he's being too intense but the issue here isn't that the kids are shitty assholes which they are the issue isn't that he is being that he is exacting authority in a in a shitty aggressive way which he is the issue is that the university system is a fucking daycare and shouldn't exist <laughs> but yes. yeah, Amber, that is Amber, a bad design of structure Am- we Am- could avoid this entirely if we decided you're 18 you're an adult get an apartment go to class or don't i don't care it's your fucking life but you don't get to go to sleepaway camp where you have a fucking <laughs> babysitter that we have to charge with exacting some kind of authority on you, but also you sort of have rights, but not really, and you're kind of a tenant, tenant, but not really. It's all bullshit. The problem is the fucking... I'm sorry. It's the fucking university. So yeah, Amber, he, like he he's paid to be a babysitter to these these obnoxious college brats, and he does his job, and like his job is a little bit stupid, and he does it with a little you know a little bit too much of a manic zeal about his you know dedication to law enforcement, even though he's not really a cop. So what happens? Uh, he's the babysitter. Then the parents come home and he gets called into the dean's office. This movie has an evil dean in it. And he thinks he's going into the <laughs> office to get a commendation for being so good at his job, stopping college kids from boozing. But no, the dean chews him out for doing his job. And, and like, and then yeah, also these reve- are our, these are our, our customers. Yeah. And he, and then he also reveals that Richard Jewell has been, uh, uh, prior to this latest incident, been performing uh, drunk driving pullovers on the highway outside of college, where he ha- and he's like, Richard, we don't have any jurisdiction, and he goes, I know, but I believe in law and order. You, you can't have a country without it. And what I love about this scene 
is that it is like the low-T academia version of literally every scene in Dirty Harry with him and the stupid <laughs> chief. Where they're like, damn it, Callahan. Oh, my God, that's true. Damn it, Callahan. Did you have to destroy so much property? You know, there are political concerns here. And then he's like, I'll tell you what, Lieutenant. Maybe I should have let them rape another few Girl Scouts before I drove that car through a store window. Billy's dead, McGarnacle. <laughs> I'm trying to eat here. <laughs> so what does he do? And he's like, and, and then what he reveals is that like he's like, well, Dean, you know, I, you know, he he quotes the dean's own speech back to him about how he quote doesn't want any Mickey Mousein around on campus, and the dean is just so fucking taken aback that someone who does Richard Jewell's job would have paid attention to his some perfunctory speech to open the semester, or like I said, like he's blown away that he takes the job that he's been given seriously at all and obviously you're just here for insurance purposes yeah Yeah. exactly you're here so the fucking parents of these brats don't fucking sue us when one of them falls out a window after drinking a fucking fifth of Kahlua right in this Richard Jewell violates the basic social contract of his station of employment and society that he's just supposed to exist to satisfy uh, insurance purposes and to be a movable piece of furniture, someone yeah. that the dean, the students, anyone can just disrespect, but is put in place like a uh, cigar sh- cigar store statue, uh, just a, a, an ornament, the thing that's supposed to be in that institution. And there's a certain amount of shit he's supposed to take for about seven dollars an hour. OK, so. So uh, then Richard Jewell, you know, he thinks he's going to receive some sort of medal of commendation from the dean for um, fulfilling his, uh, his his beer bust arrest quota. But what happens? He gets fired from his job. He loses his job. And then the next the, the, the scene right after that is him and his friend um, at the gun range. And he's sort of like uh, he's like he's, he's expressing his frustration to his friend. He's just like, you know. I, I was really good at my job, you know, like I, I took it seriously. And his friend is sort of like, why? It was a bullshit job. It's like babysitting <laughs> right. college yeah. kids. Bullshit. And then he's just like, yeah, I know, man. But like it stings. And then his friend says, he goes, the Olympics are coming, brother. You can police the whole damn world. And then, <laughs> and then just smash cut to him just pitching bullets through a target with an AR. Just tearing apart one of those paper body targets with an AR. And I was just like, I was just on my feet. Just God, Clint. God, Clint Eastwood. He's still yes. got that fucking heat. He's still got that yes. fastball. Yes. I love it. It's I so good. I literally thought that like, oh, this is And why it's good is because despite being like a reactionary image, what it does is actually give a decent kind of portrayal of what gun culture largely is, which is nerds. Yeah. 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 These are fucking nerd losers. Yeah. yeah. But I just love that line with the Olympics. You can police the whole world. So, 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 yes. from, okay. So from there, it's like, okay, the Olympics are coming. And like, then like the whole first third of this movie has this like, very like eerie and menacing vibe to it because we all know what's coming and like none of the characters are ours. So it's this, this, this ominous tone to all of it. So it cuts from there to introduces Olivia Wilde's character, or as I like to call her the most evil woman ever. Yeah, she, yeah. She, she embodies all of Clint Eastwood's fears of like, fe, fe, like female sexuality and femininity. She is just this like oversexed Gorgon 
who like hates all other women and just like wishes she had a cock like one of the boys and she hates Kenny Rogers and normal people. She looks down on everyone. She's just like, she is the fear of like monstrous femininity like unleashed on society. That's like Clint Eastwood's first first movie was Play Misty for me, which is exactly about like, like, like the fear of like a sexed up woman destroying a man's life. But it's like that character has now been, has a career and she works for the media these, yeah. these broads are now <laughs> in the fake night. news She's media. Got a pen. Exactly. She doesn't need to stab the pillow. She can just uh, the poison pen. And it's just okay. From there, uh, then we see John Hamm's character, who's like the head of the <laughs> FBI's like Atlanta division, and he's in charge of security for Olympic Park. And he is the asshole that Sam Rockwell warned about in law enforcement. He is the guy, he is the fed cop whose badge just turned him into a fucking monster. Like, it just, just a, 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 just such a vile person. And, like, these are the two forces that are going to come together, you know, quite literally, to destroy Richard Jewell's life. And then, finally, we're introduced to his sweet, sweet mother, played by Kathy Bates, oh, and just such beautiful. a fucking beautiful, moving portrait. And there's Amazing just, performance. There's just something... I, 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 this, is, this is the second time I watched this movie. Uh, the first time was like Matt and I saw it for the first time together back when that was the thing you could do. But what really hit me watching it the second time was just how heartbreaking Kathy Bates' performance is. She's just the sweetest, kind of saddest mom, and just all the scenes with her are just imbued with such a, a kind of like a, a frantic mom energy that just really, really cut to the bone for me. It was just so affecting, like her performance is just this like, just sweet, loving mother who dotes on her son and she's just, she's horned up for Tom Brokaw, you know? <laughs> she just she wants to like, watch her and Kenny Rogers. Yeah. She loves like a, her big, dumb son. She's not disappointed in her fat loser son. She yeah. loves him. She's proud of him. She's yes. the best yeah. she and, uh, can earnestly. with this hunk of clay that God gave to her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what? Judgmental. Like, he is trying. And yeah. she has like, like there's an uh, implication that they're struggling. And at one point he says, I, I, I just feel like you deserve better. And she's like, well, we all deserve better, but this is what we're doing, which is the attitude that you actually have to have when you're struggling economically like you have to you can't deny it you can't be like oh this is temporary and this is or or if i work hard i'm gonna get out of this or or i did something wrong and that's why this i'm doing this or there was some sort of glitch you can't be like that but like you do have to acknowledge that it's real and that it sucks but also you got to move the fuck on yeah amber Amber, that is the point of the movie no one deserves this, but that's what we got. And, yeah. Yeah. and crucially, we have more coming. Crucially, what she says, Amber, is like she says, yeah, like, you know, we all deserve better, honey, but this is what we got. So just get out there and do your job. That's what she says. And like, so yeah. he, he's gotten the job as the security guard at Centennial Park. And he's like excited about it because like, if I do good with this job, I could possibly get back into law enforcement. Uh, but it, it had also been pro- previously established that he was at one point a sheriff's deputy, but lost that job for, you know, uh, unspecified reasons, probably because of his overzealous commitment and sort of strange personality. But um, he says to her before he leaves to go to the job for the first time, he says to her, uh, I'm still law enforcement, right? Even if I'm just watching stereo equipment. And his mom says to him, heck yeah, you are. You're still the good guy warding off the bad guys. Yeah. And you know, like he's just, he, 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 like I said, it's this idea that he, he really believes in law enforcement. He just wants to keep people safe. And then he does. So like then, then this movie gets to the point where it's portrayal of 
Centennial Park in the 1996 Olympics is such a oh good, my God. weird historical Perfect. moment. So good. And it's just this. All those way. high-waisted it's, fucking Bermuda shorts with pleats that women were wearing for yeah. some reason. It's this very weird, like, feel. It's like a period piece. This is like, this is a historical procedural, but it like the 90s don't feel that long ago, even though 1996 was 25 years ago. And it's just, yeah. it's, it's wow. this moment that's trapped in time. And there are, Three different, very long and crowd-focused shots on the live music that's going on in Centennial Park, beginning with Kenny Rogers performing The Gambler to a crowd of people. And it's just like, and it's just these people are having, they're having a great time. It's wholesome, but it's also very sort of surreal, robotic, and menacing. And like the, the, yeah. there's a moment that happens in this movie when Matt and I were watching it for the first time that it was like I was already really enjoying it. I was already really loving Paul Walter Hauser and all of the really like funny, dark things that it was saying about America and law enforcement. But there's a scene where after Kenny Rogers performs, the crowd in, a, in the Centennial Park for the 1996 Olympics starts chanting, USA, USA, USA. And then right after... They just drop the beat for the Macarena. And it's this whole crowd of people. It's like Clint just it's like a it's like a it's like a long, like big crowd shot. And of just these like this sea of people just robotically dancing the Macarena. And like that scene to me better encapsulated like the end of history moment in America better than anything I've ever seen. It was it it, it was just it's not just that they're at the site of a bombing that nobody knows is going to take place. So it's imbued with this real like uh, sinister energy or just like they, they seem almost already dead in a way. But it's also it's like America at the end of the 20th century where like everyone was like all, all of the comfort and pleasure and joys of life. No one knew what was coming. No one saw the 21st century coming. And it's just like they're, they're, they're like the living dead trapped in the amber of this moment that I, there's, that scene just it hit me so fucking hard. This crowd of it, people dancing the Macarena. They're, they're dancing like history's marionettes. Something I love about the Centennial Park scene, and specifically the movie as a whole, we talked about it, the color palette and the lighting of it. Uh, all Eastwood movies have this very flat lighting that we talked about, which is probably, as uh, Matt and Will alluded to, is what allows him to pump out one every year, which is an <laughs> insane schedule for yeah. a man of his age. He shoots but these in like was, a week. Yeah, and that's why they all have the same coffin flat dark lighting because it's easy to set up. You don't have to do cleags and close-ups, and that means you can get more setups in a day because you don't want to die before the movie's done. And that's why this movie, like, I hate the 90s nostalgia stuff most people do because it's bright. It it washes you out. It's It looks like a a Mountain Dew commercial from the time. Because everyone around our age or younger who doesn't even remember it wants it to be this completely bright, shining time this utopia that we briefly grasped and if we imitate it physically enough we can maybe get back to it it's only the people who actually lived through it and remember it that no it wasn't that it was hollow and dark and and there was a sense of foreboding you didn't know what it was but you knew whatever this was wasn't going to last forever and that's the feeling all throughout centennial park this will not last forever even like the the joy in people's faces and their movements is so fucking hollow and there is nothing behind it. It can't last. It's running on fucking afterburner. It's the afterburner of of American industrial society. They're like, remembering yeah. they're remembering fucking Nickelodeon's double dare when yes. actually it was more of an 
acid green Fight Club color. Mm-hmm. Felix, yes. uh, God, God loves doing '90s nostalgia, and this pilgrim thinks if he does enough '90s nostalgia, he will become as God is. <laughs> yes. So yeah. okay, so that it, is that is that is literally it. There is a psycho thing going on with '90s retro aesthetic and like sort of liberal culture where it's like subconsciously if we make enough offerings to god he will channel the 90s stock market and bill clinton through joe biden's decrepit body (laughs) it's not gonna happen we're stuck here so okay so then there's one more really amazing scene in centennial park before the actual bombing scene and that's when olivia wilde (laughs) and john ham connect and Olivia Wilde, John Hamm's doing security in the crowd. He's just looking like a fucking like sullen statue, like hating all these people around him and being bored at his job because like he's like he wants a fucking bombing to happen like that. Like that's a well, so does she. Part. So does she. So does she. But and she's he, just, he is even more contemptuous of her. Yeah. No, uh, contemptuous of the crowd than she yeah. is. So like, like so, she's she's a cunt. He is a bigger cunt. So, yeah, Olivia yes. Wilde approaches him and she goes. And then everyone, the whole crowd's dancing the Macarena, and she comes up to him and goes, "Welcome to the happiest place on earth. What a fucking nightmare! Anything crimey happening?" And then it's like almost implied, like, "Hey, if there's not, can we maybe concoct something together, the media and government? Can we maybe make some horrible thing happen so we have something interesting to talk about?" And then Matt, you you talk about the the John Ham Don line of dialogue. Oh God, I love this so much. So she goes, she's like get, trying to get him to dance, and he's looking sullen, and and she, and she goes, "What's wrong?" And he goes, "I'm bored." And she goes, we're all bored. And he looks around him at the crowd doing the macaroni and goes, they aren't bored. <laughs> <laughs> so just and that's that's one of those uh, uh, phenomena that is like thing, one of the things that shapes our media and, and our understanding of the world around us that just goes unstated is is there is this huge cultural chasm between Americans who went to college and the ones who didn't. And one of the big things that makes it hard to talk about is that almost all culture is made by people who did. And so there's like a there's a there's a degree of like contempt and and fear and anxiety about that chasm that they aren't even aware of. And you need an old reactionary like Clint to like cut through that. I'm sorry. Kenny Rogers rules. Those people were having yeah, a good yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. And you fucking suck if you can't yeah. hear the gambler live and have a good time. You're yeah. the one who sucks. Yeah, no, because you're 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 fucking making your you've made your fucking resume your life. So yeah, you guys don't mind going long on this one. We're like not even no, halfway do down to the movie. Do it. Okay, it Matt, was is, a is good that some movie. sort of bird calling in your backyard? Yes, I have a bird in the backyard. It picks food. Yeah, Matt has this bird that picks food out of its teeth. <laughs> <laughs> they form a symbiotic relationship. It's very beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, it's like like that, that. That's the first night of the Centennial Park concerts, and it's like it's so, his mom shows up. They dance to Kenny Rogers together. It's so sweet, so sweet. And then and then it gets to the uh, the, the night of the bombing, and wouldn't you know it? It's Jack Mack in concert, and then Richard Jewell is like, I, I, he's like Jack Mack's my favorite artist. <laughs> <laughs> well, he says that so that he is not being told to go home because he has diarrhea. Yes, which no, that, this that, is the most. In many ways, this might be the most Chapo movie ever yes, made. Yes, it really is. It crucially, he he has the runs on the night of the bombing, and crucially, it is his like duck walking to a porta potty, which leads him to discover the backpack left under a park bench that is filled with fucking three giant pipe bombs and nails. So. 
So he sees this, he notices like an unattended bag left under a park bench, but then is immediately distracted by yet another group of rude, drunk teens who viciously abuse and disrespect him and call him lard ass and fucking like, you know, uh, like, you know, basically threaten him for telling them not to throw bottles at the, the production tower. So he, so he brings them over to the park bench where the bomb is and they sort of sit down there and they're like, what's this? Let's fucking take it and sell it to the House of Blues. The teens think they can just sell a backpack to the House of Blues. That was very strange <laughs> to me. But crucially, these drunken, rude teens, by sort of tipping the bag over onto its side, perform a crucial act that probably saved dozens of lives in that bombing. Because by putting it on the ground, it like it, it directs the force of the blast, like it diffuses, like diffuses it. And if it had been propped up, it would have just sent all of those fucking yeah. ball bearings and nails just straight out into that crowd full of people and christ knows how many people would have died if that hadn't happened or if you know richard jewel hadn't done the correct yeah. thing and he still notices the suspicious package he makes the cops call it a suspicious package when they call it in because initially they're like oh it's like oh forget about it who cares <laughs> and then they uh they bring in the bomb tech guy who opens up the bag stands up and his face is fucking like just ashen white and jewel says he's like they told us in training that if you see the bomb tech guy go pale, that's when you got to run. So like, that's an bo- amazing line. Yeah. That's an amazing line too. He's like, I remember this from homework. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's really and- thriving in a crisis situation because he actually studied the procedure. And the bomb guy, a bomb guy in Atlanta, has probably never encountered an actual bomb. Threat. <laughs> yeah. So. So they're all like, we, we got to get these people back, you know, and, he, and, he, and he's loving like talking in that cop talk, which is like, you know, like that kind of guy is something like a character that we've we've lampooned on this show so many times before. But it's interesting to see such a sympathetic portrayal of that guy because he just loves saying things like there could be a second device. We have to form yeah. a perimeter. We got a bomb. You've got to go now. You afraid you're going to miss the Jackback concert? Come on. Get down there right now. We got a bomb. Move, 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 move. Get the lead out of your pants. Come on now. You know, he just loves saying shit like that robotic that, cop like a, language. Yeah. But they do have yeah. to form a perimeter. Yeah, it they is, do. At yeah. this moment, it is the actual procedure. Yeah, this is well, what you want it. Something I thought of during that moment was that, like, if you are, like, after we greatly reformed police one day under the, uh, I don't know. Jean-Luc Mélenchon presidency. Yeah, presidency. Yes. Um, it's like... Obviously, like, imprison or deport all the cops who kill people, but the ones who didn't, like, the few who are, like, Richard Jewell types, probably still too zealous to, like, do this job in society, but not, like, completely racist death squad members, the few that are that way. You should give them a job where they, like, work at a paintball course doing stuff like this. Give them a pretend job like this (laughs) where they're, like, diffusing bombs at fake concerts and shit. And Amber, like the point is, like the whole first like quarter of the movie shows his 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 overzealous commitment to being a a law enforcement wannabe guy. But this is the one situation where you really want a a former yeah. perimeter make an ocular assessment. This is the one time where you really want that guy overdoing his he fucking saved job. Lives. Yeah. yeah. So absolutely. So yeah. Uh, well, you know, lo and behold, the bomb fucking goes off. It like you know showers fucking nails just straight through a statue, and like two people were killed in that bomb and like hundreds were injured but i mean like it could have been a lot lot worse you know had he not uh done what he did and had those rude teens not knocked the bag over to begin with yeah. so a, a pipe bomb a pipe bomb going off at a concert what a nightmare scenario that could be hundreds dead 
horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, and then John Hamm springs into action, even though he's like hundreds of yards away. He like he swoops in, and like they're doing the the sort of jurisdictional dick measuring, and then he's like, "Oh, how about all of you shut the fuck up? This is a federal crime. I'm the FBI. If you want to help us." Get, get, get in fucking line, you know? And he's like, he's already got his dick so hard because, like, this is, like, the career-making opportunity and all it took was a few hundred people getting showered with ball bearings from a fucking bomb. And then, like, the day after, immediately, like, Jewel is back on his job as private security. And what happens? Some fucking worm from, like, AT&T, like, uh, PR division immediately just scoops him up and pimps him out to Katie Couric. And it's just, like, this is where, like, the, the media takes notice of him. And they build him up correctly, like as a hero who was in the right place at the right time and did his job and saved a lot of lives. But it's but cynically. just immediate. Yeah, he's cynically, exactly. Like, like I said, like the AT, the AT and T media guy scoops him up and pimps him out to CNN, and he goes on Katie Couric, and then, and then even, even fun, even more hilariously, uh, the sort of like a New York City Will Menneker type shows up and is just like, uh, Richard, we'd love to <laughs> offer you a publishing contract to tell your story, <laughs> and it's like, and you know, for the first time in his life, it's just like he, he's, and it, and crucially, like when he goes on TV with Katie Couric, he's like, he's so humble and self-effacing about like, you know, a chewing any kind of like uh uh you know is heroism or, or or notoriety and he's just like you know like the the you know everyone else who did their job he was like i was only part of it like they're the real heroes like you know let's let's think about the victims he like he just says and does like all the right things about and it's you know, not he, false humility yeah, at yeah. all he, yeah. he believes in the authority and he believes that he's a part of like a, a larger institution so like for the first time in his life like he's finally getting the respect that you know he like that eluded him and he's got olympic athletes and cops like clapping him on the back and being like way to go richard you know he's, he's gonna have a book deal he gets home and uh, kathy bates is like tom brokaw was talking about you <laughs> but yeah it, here's the, the sweetest, yeah yeah when she goes you're a rock star <laughs> yeah like oh my god so but but, he, okay, but here but here's where here's where the turn happens and like this is very this is very key here as soon as the sort of the media adopt him and raise him up at simultaneously at the exact same moment the glowing eye of sauron that is the fbi immediately fixates on him and it's like, you know, it's like the ancient Greeks believe that, like, never let the gods see you happy. And, like, this is really what this movie is showing. And it's like, as, as soon as he the, becomes the man, the FBI is working overtime to, like, make him the guy. Because, you know, I mean, it's not, like, thorough, it's not, like, like explicitly laid out. But they choose him because they had no fucking idea who did this bombing. And they had no leads whatsoever and were completely, like, caught off guard by it and, like, looked like shit. The Olympics on like the biggest global stage, they just let a bomb go off in their at the city that like the U.S. city that was hosting the fucking Olympics. This is like the reason we have an FBI is to prevent shit like this from happening. So what happens? And where do they first get on to this well, idea? And he's easy, and he was easy too because he's Richard Jewell and not fucking John Hamm. Exactly, he looks exactly like Richard Jewell. So how did they get on to Richard Jewell? How did they get this idea that he was the suspect? It's the evil fucking Dean from the beginning who calls the FBI to drop a dime on him for no other reason than like, oh, like he just thinks that like, oh, I saw Richard on TV and uh, the kind of notoriety he's getting now is uh, just sort of what I felt he was always searching for here as a campus security officer and it made me nervous. So I'm just going to snitch on him to the fucking feds. It's yeah, the I'm evil Dean again. Life. And it's like 24 hours after he was on Katie Couric and CNN and hailed as a hero, 
His fucking photo is on a fucking cork board in a conference room with like 15 FBI agents. And it's just like from there, it's just like he is fucked. Once, you're, once your photo is on that cork board, they just invent a story and a profile that makes him the bomber. And the funny thing is, and like we were talking about this at the beginning, Richard Jewell did fit the profile of like yes. a bomber. But the point yep. is, the point is, once your photo is on that FBI corkboard, everybody fits the profile. That's yeah. the fucking point. And it's just like, the, the, like I said, the eye of Sauron just gets trained on him. And it's really the corkboard that's the problem. Yeah. And then what do, they, what do the feds do? They wire up one of his coworkers to try to incriminate him, send him to his house. They bring him like he brings him dinner to him and his mom and he immediately starts asking him about the bomb as he's being recorded. And of course, Richard Jewell knows fucking everything about making homemade bombs and just like <laughs> yeah. just rattles off every detail about how you could conceivably build a device like that. This shit is nerd stuff. I mean, like if if he was born years later, he would have been like a first person shooter gamer or something. He would have been on an American CSGO team, Richard Jewell. 100%. I don't so, know what that is, but I, I know that you're right. He so, would have been the most respected of all gamers, the CSGO pro. So, so like, you know, the, the forces behind the scenes are, are, are rapidly being arrayed against him. And then you got uh, Olivia Wilde approaches John Hamm at a bar. And, of course, she's under pressure, too, to get a story. And what does John Hamm do? He leaks Richard Jewell's name to her to get some goop. Like that's yep. it. Like that. That's the legwork. You know, she's you know, like it's, it's like these these career women. They're all whores. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and she's, like, she's she's it's the only performance that I find in the movie that I find kind of hammy. Oh no, she's going yeah. for uh, yeah, the yeah, rafter. She, and I yeah, get yeah. it. It's Olivia Wilde. Her main her, her her main job was to be like a babe, to be like a sexy version of the blockheads from Gumby. But like, it's kind of actually jarring when you have all of these really brilliant, subtle performances, and then you go to her, and she's just, "I'm a sex pot." Yeah, she's the every, only character. Every every, really- every scene, every scene with Olivia Wilde, like in at the paper or working your services, is just like. I hope I can write a big story so I can buy more tampons to put in my <laughs> pussy to soak up all the cum from guys. Yeah, that, that was what we call, though, uh, a directing issue, probably. More so than her. She's yeah, the only so character Clint part of the probably, movie. Clint probably pulled her aside and was like, act like, act like those whores who wear those skirts. <laughs> <laughs> this is part of the movie that people had the most objection to because the uh, this is based on a real reporter who really did this and uh she's dead now so people say it's unfair that she can't defend herself and it's there's no proof or 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 even suggestion that she had sex with the fbi guy in exchange for the lead and you can you can say yeah that's not fair but i kind of got to tell you it falls into artistic license to me because what could have the deal have been that would have been better yeah What, what deal could that have led to that would have been less morally compromised yeah if, if if an FBI agent told her, yeah, this fucking loser did it, and she printed it uncritically, like, yeah, yeah. I actually hope you got some dick out of it because <laughs> yeah. you just yeah. did that for no reason. John Hamm's a goddamn help you. Yeah. yeah, I hope you fucked a guy that hot to do this to a man's life. God, because yeah, I guarantee you, the actual like SAC in Atlanta was probably not John Hamm. Yeah, no, that's yeah. true. No, no. So, like so, John Ashton from so, Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> So so John Hamm whispers to her, we're looking at the security guard. And then she's just sort of like mouth agape goes, 
the fat fuck who lives with his mom. I can't believe I didn't think of this. <laughs> and then she just goes, uh, this kind of puts a clock on things. So uh, do you want to get a room or just go to my car? <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then also, like in the next scene, Clint has to show, she approaches her male coworker to be like, um, could you do that thing for me where you like do my work for me and write the story? Because <laughs> I'm not very good at writing, but I have a scoop. In, write, in writing the article, there, there's a line where Olivia Wilde is quoting from the piece that, that they're trying to get in print. And she describes what is the profile of a bomber. And she describes it as, quote, a frustrated white man who is a former member of the police or military or a police or military wannabe. That's the profile, which encompasses, I don't know, a third of every man in this country over a yeah. certain age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, so from there, the FBI is like, they're like, the story leaks. And then like the, the head of the Atlanta division is like, fuck, the story's out there. Get Richard Jewell in here, but make it a non-adversarial interview. So what they do is that they like, they trick him. Um, and like the, 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 from this point on, the movie becomes like a huge part of the movie becomes how easy it is for the FBI to manipulate and, and like trick Richard, Richard Jewell into incriminating himself by playing on his deep desire to help law enforcement. And like an aid them in investigation. Dropped. I was like, "Yeah, I'll watch this movie." And then I was like, "Oh wait, I forgot that like um, the railroading of a of a flawed but fundamentally sweet and sometimes noble oaf is one of my triggers." So it's, it's really, just, it's really upsetting. So what do they do? It's the, so sad to oh, see. They, oh, he, it was it was hard that scene. So they come to his house and they're like, uh, "Hey, Richard, um, the FBI is putting together a training video about you know what to do in a situation like that, and we want you to be a part of it. But unfortunately, we need to do it right now. So follow us to this federal building, and then they get him on camera." And they're like, okay, so we're just going to pretend here that you're a suspect, and we're going for authenticity. So um, we're going to hand you a document, and you're going to sign it, okay? And then he's like, mm, I don't know about that. And he's sort of like, he pretends to sign it without taking the cap off the pen. And they're like, uh, no, Richard, well, yeah, we actually do need you to sign this. And it is alluded to that he did this because he had called his, his friend exactly. lawyer. So yeah, he calls his friend the pre- prior to this when he gets offered the book deal by, by, by a sort of elder Will Menneker. Um, he calls Watson Bryant, who's like, he hasn't spoken to in 10 years, but he's the only lawyer that he knows. And he initially calls him because he's like, look, can you negotiate this publishing contract? I don't know anything about it. And what Watson tells him on the phone is, oh, he's like, okay, Richard, I don't, the contract's a contract. I normally don't do book deals, but hey, like, just don't sign anything until we talk. And it's that one crucial piece of advice that probably saved him. Don't sign anything. Probably, yeah. And, you know, they, they, they get him in there, and Richard is, is smart enough to kind of realize what's going on. He's like, look, this is an official document. I don't feel comfortable signing it. I think I'd like to call my lawyer. And he calls Sam Rockwell, and he's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in the downtown FBI office in Atlanta. Like, could you come, like, help me? <laughs> and <laughs> Sam Rockwell's like, holy shit, what has this guy got himself into? He's like, you know, don't tell them anything. Don't talk to them. Just wait till I'm there. He gets him out of, like, the clutches of the FBI. And then, then like, sort of the movie becomes about the relationship between him and Sam Rockwell. And Sam Rockwell's, like, increasing frustration with him as he tries to defend him and be like, look, I'm the only guy in your corner. I believe you. I believe you that you didn't do this. But, like, you got to understand, like, no one else does. And everyone that you talk to and everything, every single thing that you say and do is only going to incriminate yourself further. So just shut the fuck up. Um, and then, like, um, it, it, we, we get more of Sam Rockwell's character, and we see, like, there, there's another character who's sort of uh, his, his legal aide or uh, his secretary, but also it's later revealed his, 
his girlfriend and eventually wife. And her name is Nadia. And like she, she's from, you know, the old country. And there's a scene where Nadia Kachian and his mom. <laughs> there's, a, there's a scene where she says to him, she goes, where I come from, when the government says you're guilty, that's how you know you're innocent. And like, I was just thinking, what a fuck, what an alpha, like strong libertarian guy thing to have an Eastern European girlfriend, yeah. named Nadia, who's also your employee. Yes. Right, right. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so he got like, her through the mail. <laughs> it's Rockwell is really the only guy on his side. And then like, you know, his mom is just like, why did Tom Brokaw say that about you? And it's just like it's his mom and his lawyer are like the only ones in his corner as like the media, just like the same media that raised him up, just swarm around him to just consume his corpse. It's a really funny scene where Rocco goes to his house and like officially becomes his attorney. And he comes out of the house and he gets like thronged by reporters and he's just like, look, yeah, like I'm representing him, you know, like blah, blah, blah. He's like going through his whole thing and he gets in his car and he drives away. And what happens? Olivia Wilde has snuck into the back of his car and just pops up like some fucking like hitman and starts to, you know, sort of squeeze yeah. him for fucking juice. But because Sam Rockwell is a strong libertarian man going his own way, he is immune to the, the powers and seductress succubus like powers of this, this vile Gorgon. And he's like, get the fuck out of my car. I'm going to call the cops. And then Olivia Wilde literally does the Tweety Bird meme where she's like, you want to call the cops? Go ahead. Call them, bitch. I'll have sex with them. <laughs> she's literally the call the cops. I'll have sex with them meme. No, but what she actually does say, and Felix, this gets to your earlier point about journalists. She says, go ahead. Call the cops. Cops love me. I tell their stories every day. Want me to tell yours? And like that is the, is the crucial thing. Like that gets to like su- such to the heart of what like most crime beat reporting is, is that you have sources in law enforcement and you get those sources by telling a version of events that is a story that they tell you that they want the public to know about. And that is how you advance in your career. That's how you get scoops. That's how you get stories is by essentially dictating law enforcement's point of view yeah and yeah you you run pr for them watson bryant and nadia they eventually do this thing and it's like this really good scene that's um it's cut it cuts in between them walking the route from centennial park to the payphone that eric rudolph 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 called the bombing in and it's intercut between michael like michael johnson racing to win the 200 and the 400 meter gold medal and like they, they they make the walk from the park to the phone and then of course immediately realize that there's no way that Richard Jewell could have been in that park and made that phone call in the time frame that we like the, the, the time frame that the, the, the sequence of events happened in, which is like maybe the fucking FBI should have done that to begin with. It's like it's obvious that he didn't do it. It's making you contrast between like dumpy white Richard Jewell and Michael Johnson just being the fastest, most like physically perfect man in the world with the fucking gold jewelry and Fastest like man alive, a, a, su- yeah. a superhuman, a god on earth, and then just a lump of oatmeal. <laughs> Who was walking with diarrhea? Yes. So mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. He was good. The, the, the two hundred meter crab walk to the bathroom. <laughs> um, so yeah. So at, th- at that point, Rockwell realizes that like, holy shit, this guy's being railroaded. And like, I'm only a real estate lawyer, but like, this pisses me off. And like, I'm the only one that can help him. So I'm, I'm going to take this seriously, and I'm going to help him. And then like, so, like then the FBI comes in to like search his him and his mother's house. And it's just like, 
he asks Richard, he's like, okay, do you have any guns in the house? And he's like, uh, yeah, we're in Georgia. And he's like, okay, put them out on your bed. I don't want the FBI to have get any surprises when they pull a fucking Uzi out of your cupboard. And lo and behold, he has like 30 fucking guns. <laughs> Again, though, he's not wrong. It is Georgia. Yeah. When they get to the point where he has like a, he's like, grenade. Why do you have a grenade? It's like, it's empty. It's like, yeah, where I'm from, guys do have grenade paperweights and it's just there's this this brutal scene where like the fbi brings like 30 people into his fucking him and his mom's apartment to like ransack everything and just dissect every fucking piece of trash every fucking square inch of their house and rockwell just keeps telling him like don't say anything and richard jewell just can't help himself he keeps trying to talk to the cops get them to like him get them he's like he's like i just want those guys to know that i'm law enforcement too and Rockwell is just getting like more and more insane. And he's just like, don't you understand that these people want to put you in the electric chair? Why are you being so deferential to them? Why are you being so nice to them? And Richard, he just like he, it, the whole second half of this movie is about Richard Jewell sort of getting over the hump of his affection for law enforcement and realizing that they're not actually on his side. They're looking to prosecute and convict him. So they're not, they don't look at you as a colleague. They look at you as a suspect. And it's just, it's this, it's this really brutal, like, because he's so, like, like guileless. And it's just, like, yeah. him having to realize this is so sad to watch. Hey! Why doesn't it make you as angry as it makes me? I am angry. You could have fooled me. You're angry. Of course I am. I don't know if angry is even a big enough word for how I feel. Stop being such a doormat. Stop trying to be their best friend. You know, they're making fun of you out there. You know what they're calling I you? I know that. I know what it means when he says cop to cop. He doesn't mean cop to cop. He thinks I'm Do you? the Pillsbury Doughboy. I thought you guys were going to get engaged. And then, okay, so then what happens is, like, his, 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 again, it's just a totally just shattering performance. Like, his mom just starts freaking out because the FBI is taking her Tupperware. They're taking her Tupperware and her under things. They're ransacking her, her feminine garments. And then she sort yeah, of freaks they're, they're out. they're taking her old lady things. They're it's taking very, her things it's away. It's intimate. It's so intimate. They're taking her Disney movies. And she's like, I use those to babysit. And then she runs outside. And so like his lawyer and his mom exit for a brief period of time. And then the fucking ultimate prick, John Hamm, just swoops in and just like sort of captures Richard Joel, takes him aside and gets him to call a phone number and be recorded saying there's a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. And he gets him to say it over and over again. And like, God, like this is really the most upsetting scene in the movie. And I really want to underscore the absolute hatred I have for John Hamm's character in this movie. The real yes. guy it's based on and probably mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of other fucking feds who are exactly like this prick. Oh, yeah. It's just, it, I'm violently hateful of his character in this movie and what he does to this poor oaf Richard Jewell. Rockwell just gets increasingly, like, his frustration with Richard is, like, very relatable. Because, like, you, like, I was, first time I watched this movie, I'm screaming at the fucking TV. It's just like, no, shut up. Don't talk to these people. What are you doing? Stop it. And, you know, and, and, and like, Rockwell is just sort of like, well, why did you hire me as your lawyer if you're going to ignore everything I said? And, and like he, he breaks down and he says, I hired you because you were, the, and when we worked together, you were the only person who treated me like a human being. And he's like the, the only guy who like has any, 
it was just who treats him like with any level of like if not respect then dignity like he just treats him like mm-hmm. a, like a fellow human being who like he, he he understands what he's going through and wants to help him and it's just there's something so tragic about that that it like just really comes across in this movie uh, yeah again another theme is that like just no one gets any dignity yeah like so, no one not so, the people in the park not the macarena dancers uh, not even Michael, not even Michael Johnson. Everyone's just part of this disgusting display. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from, from there, it's just like the FBI just ratchets up all these ways to fucking entrap and incriminate him, including bugging his apartment and his lawyer's office. They get his one friend. They bring him in and press him into turning on Richard Jewell and like saying that they were did the bombing together or that he had an accomplice and then crucially imply that he was doing it because they were homosexual lovers. And there's a very which funny... is not a part of the bomber profile. <laughs> and there's a no, very funny yeah. part in the movie. Where Richard Jewell is like he's facing the death penalty and he keeps coming back. To, he's like, I want them to know I'm not a homosexual. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I just want them to know I'm not gay. <laughs> so like the FBI goes to egregious lengths to try to fucking entrap and incriminate him and get him to admit or confess to something he hasn't done because it crucially they have no evidence whatsoever that he was connected to this bombing in any way. There's no bomb residue on any of his things. There's no connections to any like militia or anti-government groups. There's no video footage. They have dick. And at this point, Olivia Wilde begins to realize after Richard Jewell passes a polygraph test and him and Sam Rockwell come into her office at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution to stunt all over her for being a fake news journalist. She goes back to John Hamm and she's like, did you did you do the walk from the payphone to the park? Like he couldn't have done it. And then without missing a beat, John Hamm is like, yeah, we know about that. He had an accomplice. And then she goes, and then she goes, wait, she goes, what happened to the lone bomber profile? And he goes, the profile is just a jumping off point. And I was like, fuck yeah. these fucking feds. I hate them so much because again, like it, it's, it, it should be underscored again that the only reason that we have an FBI is to stop people from blowing up pipe bombs in parks full of people. And they couldn't even fucking do that. Yeah. So like, what, no, what, so why do they have all these powers over us? They don't even do was, their job to keep us safe. It was the drunk teens and the, and the large man. Like, <laughs> yeah. That was it. I, uh, yeah. One of my formative memories was um, my dad telling me something I didn't know when I was a little kid, but he told me when I was about 12, that if the federal government really wants someone, they can ruin their life enough and make them fold and make them appear to the world as guilty because of a case that he had. And exactly. That, w- that was... That was um, like a little, a little fulcrum, a little thing I could push against that kept me from going like full West Wing lib is knowing that federal law enforcement would do that. Yeah, the- and this I, I feel like it's something we've forgotten over the years, and we've especially forgotten now because we want the FBI to be heroes, defenders of democracy. But there are thousands and thousands of lives ruined like this one. And, and the, the thing FBI. is, like I, Rockwell says to him at one point, he's like Richard. The only thing you're guilty of right now is looking and acting like a guy that would blow up a bomb in a park full of people. Yeah. So any anything yeah. you do to like further, uh, <laughs> like you know, further that case makes our job harder. So eventually, like it, it, the investigation goes on and on, and they never actually arrest him because they don't have anything to fucking. But like the damage in the media had already been done, and eventually, like his, they, they give a press conference where his mom 
pleads with President Clinton to help save my boy. She's just like, she's cracking in front of all these cameras, just saying, like, please, Mr. President, clear my son's name. Please, you can end this investigation if you wanted to. And so finally, finally, they get him to come in and give an official interview to the FBI. And John Hamm is just like throws everything at him to get him to like, he just like to intimidate him or to like just get something because they know they have nothing. And he just, he just stops him and goes, do you have any evidence before? Well, first he clarifies that he is like, he was there at the Jack Mack concert because he wanted to look at pretty girls and is not, not a homosexual. (laughs) (laughs) But he he just, eventually he just goes like, and John Hamm is just like, when he finally like when John Hamm's back is up against the wall, his character is just like, "Why don't you explain this to me, Richard? You know, if a hundred people got fucking injured in that bomb, and you were standing in the one place, the one time that where you we walked out of there without a scratch, I was there. How the fuck can you explain that?" And then Richard just sort of pauses, and he's just like, "Do you have any actual evidence against me?" <laughs> and then he's just owned. FBI that, guy, shut up. Yeah. Owned. Yeah. That, that was that was um that was like such a Jimmy Stewart moment, but that really fucking ripped my heart out. Yeah. yeah. No, I, goes, I was like, yeah. "Good, G- give it to him. Give it to him. He deserves yes, one of these." Yes. This soulless fucking G man. And then like, and then and then and then months later, it's uh, it's eighty eight days after the investigation started. It's him and Rockwell are at a diner having coffee and donuts. And Ham just swaggers in and just throws an envelope at them. And he's like, here you go. And he opens it up. And it's just like the official notice that the FBI no longer considers him a person of interest in this investigation. And then he's just like, let's get one thing clear. I still think your client is guilty as hell. And my clients are all the people in that park. I was there. That I failed. Yeah, that, that I, I totally got the fucking failed. failed. Yeah. Asshole. And then, and then when, when he's, asshole. and then, and then when, at one point, John Hamm says to Richard Jewell, he says, I was one of them, meaning the people who was in the park who got hurt. And it's like, no, you fucking weren't. You were like, <laughs> I, was a, you were like a, <laughs> I was a survivor. He was, he was standing there with his fucking twiddling his thumbs when that bomb went off. And then he's just like taking it all, this all on his back. It's like, well, I'm representing the victims by trying to railroad this sweet, gentle oaf into the gas chamber. Oh. Also, the oaf was there too. Yeah. Like, like, it never made any sense at all. None of his theories made any sense. So he just kept adapting in them and then just throwing in, like, what, gay lovers? Like, ugh. And it's like, yeah, Amber, whenever the FBI runs out of ideas, they're like, uh, just say he was gay. <laughs> that'll, that'll, that'll get him to fuck up. We, we're gonna try to Sounds make him make. A, yeah, we're gonna try to make him make a mistake by implying that he's a uh, low key sus with it. <laughs> so finally, Richard Jewell is vindicated. His mom gets her Tupperware back. He gets his guns back. And actually, like this wasn't in the movie, but it does. It is Chapo related. One of the consolation prizes for having the government ruin your life and the media slander you to an entire planet full of people is that he did get to do a guest appearance on Saturday Night Live. And the episode he appeared on was the Sylvester Stallone Orange Julius episode that we talked to Adam McKay about. <gasps> oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. He was awesome. At, he was at the end of the episode waving with the band and all the cast and shit like that. So, so Richard Joel got a measure of vindication. And then, like, the movie at the very he end was, of the- by the way, the, the Grand Marshal of, I believe, the Carmel, Indiana um, Independence Day Parade. Oh, that must have been the yeah. greatest day. We, 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 we put him in a, a convertible and he got to go through the parade and- through and throw candy to children. He must have been so <laughs> fucking so happy. To be in a parade. To be in a parade is candy to children. Oh my god, it's like putting a fucking dog on a farm. <laughs> yeah, <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> so the movie jumps ahead into into the future, and we see Richard Joel is back in law enforcement. He's a sheriff's deputy again, 
and he's working his job and Rockwell walks through the door and he's like, hey, Richard, you know, it's been a long time. He's like, look at you. You know, he's like, you finally got your badge. You know, you're, you, you made it. And he comes in, he tells him, he just shows up to say, he's like, they got him, Eric Rudolph. They've, they arrested the guy who did do the Centennial Park bombing. And, you know, Eric Rudolph, who knows how many fucking crimes he committed or how many people he may have killed after in the, in the you know, seven or 10 years at which he was still at large after the Olympic Park bombing. But, you know, I mean, it should be noted that he did that because he was, you know, a, a far right wing anti-abortion zealot. And, you know, like that's why he killed those people was and, and then planted several other bombs elsewhere at abortion clinics. So this was like, you know, an actually like ideologically motivated uh, terrorist act. Yeah, pre nine eleven. Also, ex troop, ex troop. Yeah, just like Timothy McVeigh. Yeah, just like mm-hmm. McVeigh. Um, and, and I'm sure. Unlike- By the way, this is the one place where I actually think beyond the kind of you know, there's there's, there's, there's some gender, there's some gender in the movie, but beyond that, like the one thing where I think like, oh, this is still a, a Clint Eastwood joint, is that like they didn't go into at all who the actual right-wing psychopath that bombed <laughs> yeah. the Olympics yeah, was. Yeah. Just leave that part off. Just leave that part off. There's victims, yeah. but there's no villains except for authority. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so sometimes the anti-authority people are pretty bad, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're pretty bad. Yeah. Depends on what authority. Yeah, yeah, I know. So, and then, like, you know, it, it's... And then and Richard Jewell says, he's like, you know when the arraignment is going to be? Because I want to be there in court when they, when, when they charge him. And like that's the last you see of him, and then it, and then it fades to black, and in what is actually really the most crushing fucking moment in the movie, the the first end title card says Richard Jewell died of heart failure in two thousand seven at forty four. No yeah. dignity, oh no it's dignity exactly for like, anyone just, ever. Yeah, like th- that's his life, you know, like uh, one of you know poor health, bad jobs, um, getting massively fucked over, and then maybe a little bit. Of, of, you know, a, a little bit of respect and dignity restored and, and when people realized how wrong they were about it. But it's just the idea that he died at 44 is just so sad. So fucking sad. It's yeah. so fucking heartbreaking. But then it, and then it does show you that um, uh, Rockwell's character, oh, uh, Watson Bryant, married Nadia, his Eastern European girlfriend and employee, and they have two kids. And Barbara Jewell, Richard's mom, still babysits them to this day. Yeah. Aww. Oh, it's just, oh, my God. I know. Strong men also cry. Oh, my Strong God. Strong men also cry. This might be the most Chapo movie ever. It's, again, about a, a fat loser with diarrhea who tries <laughs> to do good and, and is persecuted. And, and, and we love him, folks. We love him. Yeah, no, I mean, this, the Richard Jewell and, like, Paul Walters Hauser's portrayal of him is such a stock Chapo character that is, you know, we, we certainly have, have, have made that kind of person a figure of, uh, of fun and risability for and you know not unjustly so but i mean this movie is really heartbreaking because it really does it really does that turn that back on you in a lot of ways mm-hmm. i think that the thing that uh sticks with me is is we yeah it's set in 2000 it's 1996 but it is it feels like it's an absolute like pinpoint biopsy of like the current moment in terms of all the forces and how they're perceived, the, like the wild alienation between Americans along cultural lines, this deep suspicion of all of these failed institutions that have no credibility anymore, but still determine the course of our lives, like the media and the fucking military uh, and uh, law enforcement uh, and the fucking academia, for that matter. 
uh, and we just think about how much worse things have gotten since yeah. the mid-90s mm-hmm. and how much more mediated our lives are by the fucking internet and shit. And I can't help thinking that, you know, in 1996, Richard Jewell, that guy, he was the hero at Centennial Park. But I can't help thinking that if that same guy grew up now, he would have been planting the fucking bomb. Not to be all whatever, but we all could have been planting the bomb. Depending on well, I'm just conditions. saying because of how much, how much, how worse everything has gotten at all the same axis since 1996. Yeah, I, yeah, I see what I see yeah. what you're saying. There. And that's what yeah. I mean about probably these... wouldn't be planting the bomb. Maybe it'd be a mass shooter or something. Oh, exactly. I mean, I was just trying to yeah, do yeah, symmetry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's too fucked. He would be like the guy who sent the bombs that were just like Caesar uh, like t- t- <laughs> uh taped to a fucking uh, like a burner cell phone to Robert De Niro, the the guy with the van. I mean, my comment would be that like it, it's all the more terrifying because the FBI profile that they stitched up Richard Jewell with was is the exact opposite of who Eric Rudolph was who was a guy who had was part of a network of fucking anti-government extremists and had an intense ideological motivation for carrying out an act of terrorism it wasn't like he was just a wannabe hero or wanted notoriety or attention or to like play a part or get some sort of accolade it was like this was a politically motivated act of terrorism that was done with accomplices as part of a broader kind of terrorist network and then like the fbi com- completely missed that like they did also miss 9-11 he had trouble integrating into society but he had moments where he was very successful too like so he was sort of like up and down which is also sort of indistinguishable i mean like a lot of americans are they have good luck and they have bad luck so it's not like you know a, a, a serial loser someone with just like a, a perfect track record of failure is like the one you need to be looking for but it's obviously like the most attractive person to point at and be like yeah it's probably that guy he's the biggest fucking loser and you know like yeah like exactly like there's one moment where i I forget it's either kathy bates or richard jewell is sort of despairing to uh sam rockwell about like you know how, how can they how can they do this to someone and rockwell goes it's easy it's because you don't matter and like that to me yep. really like sums up the horror of this movie is that like if you don't matter if the, it's like I said, like I said, as soon as that glowing eye fixates on you, anybody can fit the profile. Anyone can be broken. Anyone can have their lives ruined if you fit the the, the, the picture of a character in a story that very powerful people want to tell or need to tell because they need to tell it because they're not actually in control. Like I, as I've said many times on this show, they can't actually stop bombs from going up in car fucking parks. Yeah, it's just all they have is the ability to be author- authoritarian. Yep. They have to. They have to find someone. Someone has to pay. That's yeah that's, for their inability to actually manage any of these things they're supposed to be doing. All all there could ever be is eternal scapegoats. I thought it was a really good Clint Eastwood movie, and mostly I watch them at this point. The later ones to sort of laugh or to get some sort of like um, ambient sense of the reactionary imaginary or whatever. But this was yeah, like I totally agree. Morally complicated but also sympathetic. And it's literally because, again, he chose the story of someone that he would never fantasize being. Yeah. I think, I think that pretty much sums it up. Uh, we've gone long on this one, but... Uh, yeah, sorry. That, that, that was Richard... That, that this was, folks, that was the life and times of Richard Jewell. And that was the, the strange, strange moment of America in the late 90s entering the 21st century and that nobody could see what was coming but this movie is very much about the america that we currently live in in many ways so absolutely i think that that about sums it up 
just God, Clint Eastwood. We simply must bow down before the, still the, got a few, the, uh, the, the ancient, wizened master. Bow down before him. Let's go out. Roll that beautiful Macarena sound. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> I am not trying to do that. When I dance, they call me Magarena. And the boys, they say, que soy buena. They all want me, they can't have me. So they all come and dance beside me. Move with me, chant with me. And if you could, I'll take you home with me. Now don't you worry about my boyfriend, the boy whose name is Vitorino. I don't want him, couldn't stand him, he was no good, so I... <laughs> Now, come on, what was I supposed to do? He was out of town, and his two friends were so fine. <laughs> Macarena.